Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Hi, my name is Ravi Mehta, and welcome to the Pax Britannica podcast. In 1913, at the peak of British imperial power, 23% of the world's population and 24% of the world's landmass lay under the rule of the British Empire. The Union Jack flew from Belize to Bangladesh, shaping everything from the governing institutions to the languages people spoke in those territories governed by the British Empire. It is impossible to understand the future trajectory of those countries once ruled by the United Kingdom without understanding the effects of British colonialism. However, if one wants to understand how the British Empire works, one must first look to the infancy of British imperial rule. So far in the Pax Britannica podcast, Sam Hume has combined high-quality production values, an incredibly detailed and rigorous approach to explaining the history of the early days of the British Empire, and the storytelling talent to make all of this incredibly exciting to create one of the best history podcasts out there. I cannot wait to hear more about the evolution and growing power and might of the British Empire. If you want to learn about what happened to the developing world after the Pax Britannica ended, you might want to check out the Wealth of Nations podcast where I, Ravi Mehta, discuss the history, politics, and economics of economic development. But without further ado... Let's get back to Sam Hume and the excellent Pax Britannica podcast. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Bonus episode. The sinking of the Arandora Star. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. Today's episode is actually the talk I gave at Intelligent Speech in the summer. It's been available to patrons since then, but now the whole program of talks are becoming available for free on YouTube. This week I've been completely swamped by PhD work and other things, so I've not actually had a chance to finish the script for the next narrative episode, and so to avoid breaking my streak of weekly releases, here it is. Now, I should say that the sound quality of Crowdcast, which is the service we use to run the conference, isn't the best, but hopefully I've managed to clean it up enough. As I said on the Patreon release of this talk, wartime civilian internment is a subject I'm really interested in. I did my master's, I did my undergrad thesis, and then my master's thesis on the topic. So, um, I'm thinking of making it into some kind of bonus series, probably on Patreon, just to avoid clogging up the main feed. So, let me know what you think. Finally, thank you to Eric Fogg for being my moderator, 
and to Ravi Mehta for introducing today's episode. Absolutely, go and have a listen to the Reconsider podcast, which is Eric's podcast, and to the Wealth of Nations. Now, let's begin. All right, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to, uh, I'm actually really glad I get to watch uh, this one as admin. So I'm Eric, I'm your admin. I, uh, allow me please to introduce Sam Hume, the host of Pax Britannica, a podcast about the rise of the British Empire, which I have been following since day one. And today, uh, Sam is going to be sharing with us a great talk. During the Second World War, Britain interned and deported thousands of, quote, enemy aliens. Most would end up on the Isle of Man, but many were expelled to the rest of the British Empire until the policy was overturned. This talk will cover the experiences of three interned aliens who all found themselves aboard the Arendora Star. Sam, take it away. Thank you, Eric, uh, for such an excited introduction. I'm pumped now. Um, so to myself out, sorry. Oh, yes. Uh, you... I, I got it. Name? You got it? Yeah, I got it. There we go. Bye-bye. Um, so, after Britain declared war on Germany in September 1939, enemy alien tribunals were established by the Home Office to judge the loyalty of the Germans and Austrians living in Britain. At first, these tribunals weren't very good, uh, but they were eventually improved, and by February 1940, most of the 75,000 Germans and Austrians in the UK had been reviewed, and they'd been given either Class A, B, or C. Class A were those who were deemed an immediate risk, Nazis, or people who were really loyal to Germany and would potentially help an invasion. They were arrested immediately, and they would be interned. Class B were those who were placed under surveillance. These, were, these people were banned from travel, but there wasn't enough reason to arrest them yet. Class C were for those who were deemed safe. Now, this was most of the aliens living in Britain, uh, mostly the refugees of the Nazis, Jews, socialists, communists, Jehovah's Witnesses, the people who had more to lose if the Germans invaded. About 66,000 aliens were put into Class C. Um, and so far, while not a flawless policy, it was a measured response to potential threats. And then Norway, the Netherlands, Belgium and France all fell to Germany and everything changed. By the end of May 1940, the British would start evacuating from Dunkirk. Now to explain the rapid Nazi successes, this is following on from the First World War where fronts moved inches a day, if that, um, a wave of false but terrifying reports appeared in the British press. Um, according to the papers, the German invasions were helped by fifth columnists, planted in advance. One report was taken particularly seriously by the press and the government, and it declared that every German and Austrian was under suspicion. Now, the Home Office had already concluded that only a small minority of enemy aliens were at danger, and they'd been arrested. At the same time, the security services, MI5 and MI6, had been interrogating and trying to uh, agent provocateur many enemy, enemy aliens to try and sniff them out as traitors, and they hadn't succeeded. Nevertheless, after the entry of Italy into the war in June, Churchill gave the order to collar the lot. Um, aliens from across the country, starting in coastal regions, because they might aid an invasion, and then elsewhere, were arrested. In addition to civilians from enemy, enemy nations, the decision was also taken to intern a number of members of the British Union of Fascists, Socialists, communists, known members of the IRA, and the most dangerous subversives of all, pacifists. Thousands of internees would end up on, in camps in the Isle of Man, where I grew up. 
I lived in one of the houses that had once been part of an internment camp. There's still rusty barbed wire from the camp on a wall at the bottom of my street. Um, up until a few years ago, you could still see where the posts for the fences had been hammered into the ground. And during my research, I've seen photographs of an armed guard standing on the steps where my nana still sits and has a cup of tea. Despite all this, I know knew very little about uh, my street's history until I got to university. And that's not uncommon when looking at wartime internment. It's one of the lesser known parts of the Second World War. Excuse me. Um, so the experiences for internees could differ wildly. And there was about, well, there was almost 100,000 of them. I'm not going to cover the entire history in 20 minutes. So I'm going to focus on the experiences of a few internees who found themselves facing one of the worst, the sinking of the Arundora Star. Peter Jacobson was 16 when he left Berlin with his mother on the 27th of February, 1933. History buffs might recognize that date as the night of the Reichstag fire. His father had been the editor of a liberal magazine, Die Weltblum, before he died. The family kept the magazine and brought in a new editor, Karl von Ossietzky. Ossietzky had served prison time for exposing Weimar, the Weimar government's rebuild of the armed forces, and uh, Peter's mother had already been ready to flee the country for months. The Jacobsons fled to Vienna, then to Switzerland, and then finally London in August 1933. Peter began working for the British Shell Company, and then after that he joined an advertising firm. Ossietzky, throughout all this, was still in a concentration camp where he contracted tuberculosis. Uh, Peter, with his new skills and connections, wanted him to be awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, and he got endorsements from Bertrand Russell, H.G. Wells, J.B. Priestley, Virginia Woolf, and loads of others. There were similar campaigns in other countries, and Ossietzky won in 1936. Hitler wasn't particularly pleased that his political enemy had been internationally acclaimed, and he banned Germans from accepting Nobel Prizes from then on. Ossietzky died from tuberculosis in 1938. After the war began, paper rations meant job cuts for advertisers, and Jacobson was sacked. He moved to a farm in Berkshire for work until October 1939, when he was summoned to a tribunal. He brought along a friend, from an old colleague from Shell, who came with him, uh, who told him, this will be very easy. I know the chairman. He was far too confident. Um, Jacobson was designated Class B and prevented from travelling. Jacobson believed the chairman saw him as a juvenile delinquent and possibly justifying this claim, he himself admits that if his friend hadn't been there, he would have slashed the chairman's tires. Uh, so there is that. Jacobson then ignored the travel restriction and went to London to visit a friend, and then he was arrested and interned. Jacobson was sent to the oratory school in Chelsea. He was kept in a basement with dozens of other internees, uh, sharing three rooms. Jacobson was then transferred to Devon. And throughout all of this, uh, he felt that the British were still misguided about the Nazis. Um, he recalled a family friend saying that Hitler was, at the end of the day, still a gentleman. Um, so he wasn't particularly pleased with the British uh, at this point. He stayed in Devon in Seton Camp uh, until the 30th of June, when he boarded a train to Liverpool. Then he boarded the Arundora Star, bound for Canada. Jacobson tried to claim a room for himself, not a cabin, but a bathroom. He, uh, he, he put a sign on the door saying private keep out and barricaded himself inside. And he was evicted by, a, by an army officer who gave him a sleeping bag and told him to find somewhere else to sleep. Uh, the other people we'll look at are the Radock brothers. 
Their ancestors emigrated from a Czech Jewish ghetto to East Prussia in the 1860s. The family became Protestant in 1900. His father and his uncle fought in the First World War. Uwe was born in 1916 and had three brothers and a sister. After the war, his father returned from the front and became a director in a railway company. Now, the, the Radocs were very patriotic Germans. They were appalled by the Treaty of Versailles. But throughout the 1920s, uh, their Jewish heritage repeatedly came up. Um, Uwe was told at school that despite his parents' Christianity and his own Christianity, he was Jewish by descent. And this was enough of a newsflash for Uwe that he had to go home and ask his mum what a Jew was. Um, in 1933... Uwe went to the University of Königsberg. He studied maths, physics, and meteorology. Over summer, the students were made to serve the state and were given the choice of either military training or working on a farm. Uwe chose the, chose the military, and he got a place on an artillery course. Uh, while on this course, he won a shooting competition, and his prize was a signed photograph of Adolf Hitler. He took it home and put it in the cupboard facing the wall. Lots of the Radox friends by this point were leaving the country. Um, but Uwe's father refused to give up what he'd built, and he also rejected the Nazis' designation that he and his family were Jews. Uwe transferred to Munich University, and here his student card was yellow to indicate his Jewishness. Students and staff refused to work with him. After graduating, Uwe struggled to find work because of his Jewish status. When trying to enter the aircraft industry, his father wrote a letter to Hermann Goering, Supreme Commander of the Luftwaffe. Um, this didn't help. Um, Uwe was reaching his limit to tolerating living in a country that actively considered him inferior. In May 1938, Uwe sailed to Britain. He got a job in Glasgow. He was here when Kristallnacht happened, but luckily his parents had been away from the house. Um, from this point, uh, Uwe began convince, trying to convince his family to come join him, and his youngest brother, Jobst, did. Uh, he also began saving money and spending his free time in the library to improve his English. Uh, another brother, Rainier, joined his siblings in August 1939, and Uwe's last brother, Peter Christoph, was still in the German army, um, and his parents and sister remained in Königsberg. It was finally agreed that the entire family would emigrate to Australia. The next available space was mid-September 1939, so of course it was cancelled on the last day of August, with the, war cloud, with the clouds of war approaching. The Radock brothers were, tra were then travelled to a wealthy friend's manor in Yorkshire, and they were here when, Cham when Chamberlain declared war on Germany. A month later, the police arrived. The three brothers were taken to an empty garage in Lincoln to be interrogated by MI5. Then they were put on a train to Devon. None of the brothers had gone before a tribunal. Before Christmas, the Radock brothers were transferred to Lingfield Racecourse, and since none of them had been before a tribunal, they decided they would try and appeal their internment. Um, here, Uwe was interviewed by an MI5 officer, and he thought he could argue his way out of it, until the officer produced some damning evidence. The letter his father had written to Goering, in which his father describes his extreme loyalty to Germany and his military training. Um, Uwe was then declined the, uh, the appeal. He was very confused about how the British had got hold of this letter. He believed that uh, it had been... There's been a copy in the in the German embassy that had been found when the Germans when the British seized it, but there's an alternative theory that the British and the Germans exchanged information on potential dissidents, and that's how MI5 had a copy. 
because the Nazis had given it to them. So uh, the brothers were, uh, they had their tribunal uh, experience and they were again interned. They were sent back to Devon. And here they settled into life. Um, Uwe worked in the kitchens and Jobst in the office. They were here when news arrived from Germany that their father had been sent to a concentration camp where he'd stayed for six for four months until their mother had secured his release. They planned to go to South America. Um, their uncle, despite winning medals of valor in the war, had been killed in another concentration camp. The Raddock brothers were then put onto a train for Liverpool on the 20th of June, 1940, the same train as Jacobson. They too boarded the Arundora Star, though they did get a cabin. The last person we'll look at is uh, Bruno Field. Now, Bruno Field was not a refugee. He was a German. He was a German businessman living in Britain. He didn't really like the Nazis, and he resented the way that Nazism and Germany were becoming conflated and inseparable, even in Britain. As war, as war approached, Field was told his wife and children could leave the country, but he couldn't. On the 30th of November, 1939, the Fields went before a tribunal. They denied being Nazis, but they refused to answer how they'd voted in a secret ballot on the annexation of Austria. His wife was placed in category B, along with their two children, but Bruno was interned immediately. His family would visit him over the next few months, but in May, they too were interned and taken to the Isle of Man. On the 30th of June, Bruno Field arrived in Liverpool on a different train to the Radox. He had learnt that his family were in the Isle of Man, and he hoped that he would be joining them. He hadn't been allowed to write to them to let them know he was being moved, so they were completely unaware. Um, and he held out this hope that he would go to the Isle of Man until he saw the ship that he was about to board. It was uh, a large ocean liner. Portholes were covered, and there was barbed wire on the deck. It was the Arundora Star. He got a cabin, eventually, after a night sleeping in a dining room. A new group of arrivals, Italian internees, meant that Field was moved to one of the nicest cabins on the ship. So the Arundora Star departed Liverpool in the early hours of the 1st of July. She had a normal carrying capacity of 450 passengers and 200 crew. On this voyage, she was carrying 1,600 people. It was overcrowded, but not unbearable. The peacetime contingent of passengers were always first class, so there was plenty of space uh, to be found in the vast cabins. On board were 734 Italian internees, 479 German internees, 86 German prisoners of war, and a few hundred guards and crew. Importantly, the star was not part of a convoy or escorted by any Navy vessels. So on the 2nd of July, about 75 miles from the Irish coast, a German submarine launched a torpedo at the unprotected liner. The torpedo hit, and the explosion destroyed the ship's engine room and killed a number of crew outright. The torpedo also knocked out the electricity, plunging the ship into darkness and cutting off the internal communications. With no way to organize an evacuation, quick decision-making was key to survival. The Raddock brothers decided to jump overboard rather than wait for space on a life raft. Jacobson, still in his pajamas, hurriedly put on a life jacket with the help of another internee before he followed the uh, example of the crew who were throwing themselves overboard too. Floating around and trying to find something to hold on to, he recounts how he saw a familiar face lying on a plank of wood. Good morning, Mr. Holmes, Jacobson called out. Good morning, Mr. Jacobson, replied Holmes. Then Jacobson found, a sp found space on a life raft and he was hauled aboard. Bruno Field had immediately headed above deck after the explosion, only to find that the closest lifeboat was behind a fence of barbed wire. 
uh, he saw other internees trying to climb this barbed wire fence, and he was about to join them until the lifeboat began to be lowered, at which point he jumped from the deck into the lifeboat. Um, he injured his back doing this, but he was otherwise safe. Not everyone was. It took half an hour for the Arendora star to sink. Uh, the men in the lifeboats could only watch as the ship sank stern first. Uh, debris was hitting those still clinging to the vessel, and hundreds were still on board when she went down. Um, not all who escaped the ship survived until rescue either. Some were hit by falling objects. Others got caught in the oil that spread from the stricken ship. Um, others, floating or clinging to life rafts, had to face the icy cold water, and many died. One particularly tragic account describes how a father, seeing his son die from the cold, let go and let himself drown. Another survivor, a journalist named Moskowski, gave up his space on the raft, telling his friends, I've enjoyed my life, you save yourselves, before sliding overboard and drowning. Jacobson's plank-bound friend, Mr. Holmes, also died. It took two hours for rescue to reach them. An RAF plane dropped supplies and a message that help was on the way, and a Canadian destroyer, the St. Laurent, arrived. The Canadians received no end of compliments from the internees, who made they, they made no distinction between British or foreigner, internee or prisoner of war, treating them all with kindness. The St. Laurent took them to Glasgow. Now, the sinking of the Arundora Star devastated the closely connected Italian community in Britain. Every Italian in Britain knew someone who died with the star. The Germans were not unscathed either, and there were many public figures, anti-Nazi public figures, who had been killed in the sinking. In the aftermath of this disaster, as was depressingly the norm when it comes to civilian internment, the press explained the high death toll by blaming the internees. The Germans were said to have been ruthless in their escape, beating and killing inter uh, other internees to make space in the lifeboats. The Italians were cowardly in another way, acquiescing to the Germans in the same way that Mussolini was apparently kowtowing to Hitler. Most of these initial reports came from the British guards, who, quite conveniently, took up the uh, highest rate of survival. Further evidence from the, that the internees were themselves at fault for their own deaths came from the British government, when the shipping minister informed Parliament that the Arundora Star had more than enough lifeboats and life rafts for everyone on board. The Foreign Office informed the German and Italian governments that many of the internees had refused to use the life rafts, even after the ship had gone down. But what has become apparent in the decades since, like so much of the panic surrounding enemy aliens, this was incorrect. The survivors were interviewed very quickly after the sinking, and the Admiralty report disputed the initial accounts of chaos and cowardice. Likewise, a number of internees compiled a memorandum to counter the press, though this was sadly never published. These sources concur on several points. There was little, if any, infighting between the internees or between the internees and the British guards. The disparity in Italian and German casualty rates wasn't down to the Germans ruthlessly killing the Italians, but down to demographics. There were more Italians on board, and uh, most of them were allocated to the lower decks, making it harder to escape. Most Italians uh, were elderly or middle-aged. Most of them were working in the restaurant industry or were otherwise gentlemen. Most of the Germans were younger, and a large proportion were captured seamen. They were better prepared physically and mentally for a shipwreck. And of course, there weren't enough lifeboats, uh, despite what the shipping minister said. Two of the 14 lifeboats were not usable. One had been damaged by the torpedo, the other had been written off at the start of the voyage. But even if they'd all been usable, 14 lifeboats was not enough for three times the amount of people on board, 
So to finish off um, the timing, what about our protagonists? Once the St. Laurent reached Glasgow, they once again split up. Bruno Feel was taken to hospital for his injury before getting a first-hand tour of about a dozen internment camps before finally joining his wife and children in Russian camp on the Isle of Man. The Fields would stay in the Isle of Man until May 1945, when they were repatriated to an occupied Germany. Jacobson and the Raddock brothers were taken to an empty warehouse where the oil was washed from their skin, and in the morning they were given simple postcards to write their names and their parents' addresses. Printed on the postcards were the words, I am safe, and they couldn't add anything else. The Radocks and Jacobson would join 3,000 others on the Donera a week later for a two-month journey to Australia, which was a scandal all of its own. The Radocks survived the war and the Donera. Uwe and Rainer both became accomplished academics. Jacobson would return to Germany after the war to act as a translator for the Nuremberg trials, and he would emigrate to the United States in 1948, eventually working at Harvard Center for International Affairs. Thank you. Ah, sorry, I was muted. My bad. Um, I was like, well, uh, okay, so we've got a couple questions coming up. Um, Sam, thank you so much for your great talk. Uh, uh, you know, I, I would clap, but it would just be annoying for everyone listening. Um, I'm just going to jump straight to questions for now. Um, we've got three already. So, uh, ooh, people are upvoting questions. That's brilliant. Um, mm. I didn't realize you could do that. So the top question, do you think that the lack of information on internment in public education has been an international purpose? Does that, uh, Brie, if you could, if you could clarify, do you mean that uh, the lack of information on internment has been like, has been intentional and, and like kind of an in intentional, like international government, um, like gov government in intent to just like not share this? I'm going to assume unless we hear from Brie, that's what she meant. I think there's a, there's a little bit of a delay for yeah. uh, the audience, I think. So I'm sure she'll pop up in a second. <laughs> People are commenting on the mug. Yes, uh, History of England mug. First one ever ever bought. Oh, Mr. Crowther. I know. Uh, I was uh, very happy to get it. Back. Yeah, back in action. Mm. Uh, uh, ah, in Canada, it's become a huge part of our education system. So yeah, I think it's about, you know, is, is this being intentionally suppressed in the public education system? I don't know about intentionally suppressed. Um, there's, I mean, this is difficult because I, I basically answered that question with an entire chapter of my master's dissertation. So I can't really uh, put that into a answer right now, but basically it was a combination of um, people just not wanting to talk about it basically. And that's not just um, like the British, but the internees themselves. Um, there were quite a few, um, obviously the British brushed it under the carpet as quickly as they could um, once the panic died down and they realized they just interned hundreds, like tens of thousands of people for basically no reason. Um, but the internees themselves, a lot of them wanted to stay in Britain. Um, some of them wanted to stay in the Isle of Man afterwards. And there was this general feeling that making a big stink wasn't a good idea if they wanted to stick around. Um, because getting a residence permit or getting naturalized was very, was, was much more difficult than it is nowadays. Um, and any sign of disloyalty was uh, frowned upon. Um, and I think that's part of the reason that just people didn't want to talk about it. So it's kind of just fallen by the wayside. It's, it's also not one of the most exciting, adventurous parts of the Second World War that, 
you know, school kids tend to want to learn about. Uh, I mean, I didn't learn about it in school. And I went to a school that was on the Isle of Man, where, like, there were camps everywhere. It's, it's, it's bizarre. But I don't think it was a, deli a deliberate thing. I think it was just a lack of interest, mainly. So uh, with another three upvotes from Greg Murray, uh, or Gregory Murray, excuse me, has anything come to light? Oh, sorry, that stuff moved. Uh, has anything come to light as to why she was sailing without an escort and not in a convoy? Was she a fast liner? Hmm. Um, I think, I don't know if something's come to light as much, but I think that the uh, it was safer in a way to go unescorted um because if you were in a if you were in a convoy then uh you became more of a target um the 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 captain of the u-boat who who sank the arandora star recounted in his diary that he wasn't sure whether the whether the, the star was hostile until he watched it move and it was it was zigzagging as if to avoid attack so it kind of then invited the attack because why would you be avoiding attack if you weren't expecting it if you, why would you expect it if you weren't an enemy? Um, so I think that's part of it. They were just like, it's safer if you try and just be sneaky. Um, but it just so happened that there was a there was a submarine waiting, and they saw them. As they say, nothing calls attention like a base of action, right? Yeah. So uh, with the most upvotes now, Mr. Robin Pearson, uh, host of the History of Byzantium podcast, who stole all of uh, my potential viewers in the last uh, in the last session, asks, "How do you balance podcasting with academic work with also having a life?" Smiley face. Oh, that's tricky. Um, I mean, the honest answer is probably that I don't. Um, <laughs> that. <laughs> that um, there's only so many hours of productivity in a day and they can't, it's hard to balance those among having a social life, doing a PhD and also putting out a podcast. Um, I think generally I probably prioritize, hopefully my supervisors aren't watching, um, but I usually prioritize the podcast over the PhD. And I think that's purely just psychologically, it's more immediate. I can write, 3,000 words of a script and the episode is out that week. I could write 3,000 3, words of a chapter. That's not even half a chapter. That's not even a quarter of a chapter. And no one's going to see that for another year. So it's, that's, I think, a big part of it. But um, it's a struggle, basically. I try and keep, I try and keep a balance, but it doesn't always work. Hope that answers it. <laughs> Robin's going, I knew it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And from Lisa Rosenthal, how much of the treatment of the internees in Britain was a result of anti-Semitism? Oh, um, with things like this, it's hard to, it's hard to measure. Um, but I get the impression that a lot of it was, there was, um, just an underlying current of anti-Semitism just in British society. And it kind of lessened when like there was some sympathy for the Jews because they knew like there's, there's one, um, one account of one of the internees uh, being held at revolver point by a British officer and asked, who are you? Are you Jewish? And the guy said, yes, I'm Jewish. It was just like, Oh God, I, I, I knew we'd get the wrong lot. So like the people in charge of internment 
who had to enforce internment knew that they were meant to be dealing with Nazis. Um, and yet here they were putting refugees behind barbed wire, which uh, didn't go down. They weren't, they weren't wholly happy with it. Um, but that's actually, I, I'll take that back actually, because that suggests that there was this, the, the British guards were overwhelmingly like non-xenophobic. That wasn't really the case at all. Um, I think there was just a general anti, there was just a general xenophobia in British society. Generally, anti-Semitism was just an added flavor of that. Um, and the people who believed in anti-Semitic anti conspiracy theories tended to also be Nazis, or at least Nazi, Nazi sympathizers who would have been arrested anyway. I'll, I'll take the opportunity to ask a question of my own since I don't see mm -hmm. any more written here. We've got seven minutes left, folks. So if you've got questions, feel free to ask. Um, mine's low priority. Um, since the Second World War, have we seen kind of continued um, continued action by the British government against um, like a group of people, uh, uh, like a group of people uh, of like either ethnic or racial or religious minority um, that are similar, you know, that 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 match the ethnic, racial, or or religion of a country that Britain's with at war with, including. Um, let's say the Falkland Islands War, um, the Korean War, the uh, the war in Afghanistan, and the war on terror, or the war in Iraq have have like British citizens of you know of of ethnic, national, racial, religious minorities faced some sort of like uh, you know extra like like extra or or, or or like have had their civil rights um curtailed in some way since then or is world war ii sort of the end of that um of that era hmm. um i think at that point you if you divide the british isles from the empire hmm. then it's easy to answer that because in the, in the british isles i can't i mean there's one there's there's one obvious uh possibility which is Northern Ireland um, and Catholics and the the build up to the troubles in the sixties and and all of that. Um, I'm not fully knowledgeable about it, but there were definitely discrimination and there was uh, internment, or maybe it wasn't called that, but there was definitely internment um, outside of the British Isles. Um, there were many like um, many rebellions and, and anti-imperial uprisings um, that. I mean, the British invented the concentration the concentration camp. They brought it back in to deal with with rebellions. Um, but I mean, even more modern, I think you could you could generally see suspicion towards after after any and it's the same in the states. It's the same everywhere. After any kind of uh, Islamic terrorism, there's always like a like a rush to try and generalize and, and collectively punish or have collective suspicion towards uh, Islam. Um, but I don't think it's ever come to actual legal hmm. action. Um, and I may be wrong there. And I'm probably forgetting something after 9-11 and 7-7 and, and all of that, because I mean, I was, I probably just forgot. But um, I don't know if there's never been anything on the scale of internment on the scale of the World War Two internment uh, since the Second World War. To my knowledge, I might be I might be wrong, but that's that's my uh, that's to my knowledge. 
Thank you. And one last question we have. Has there ever been an official, this is from Mark, has there ever been an official apology for internment in Britain? No, I don't think so. Um, like I said, most people tend to just uh, brush it under the carpet. Um, and no, I, there was no, for, for a public apology like that, you need the victims or the or the descendants of the victims to push for it, to campaign for it. And that just didn't happen. Mm. Um, like I said, they were very keen on just, okay, we were interned. It wasn't awful for most of them. It, for most of them, it wasn't terrible. It wasn't on the same level of, of the Nazi concentration camps. I don't want to give that impression. Um, but most of them came out of it and was like, okay, the British panicked. That's not normal. The war's over. Let's just live our lives. They just wanted to move on. Um, that's why the memorandum compiled after the after the star sank was never published. The, they just wanted to live their lives. Um, so no, I don't believe there's been an actual apology. There's there's been commemoration. Um, I mean, to go back to the square I lived on, um, there was a there was a tree planted with a plaque for the for the Jewish internees there um, by some international organization a few years ago. And the local college did an art exhibition and there was it was carvings of the art that had come out of that camp um, and that was inserted into the garden that's now there. Um, but that's that's not state led. That's not state apology. Um, and no, to my knowledge, they haven't there's never been an apology like that so we are we are about at time um folks who who joined us thank you so much um sam you got tons of kudos accolades and thank yous on the thread um brilliant talk as always and those who don't know sam is the host of pax britannica um a history of the rise of the british empire and um, I'm a big fan. You can find it by uh, just searching Pax Britannica podcast or what's the website, Sam? Uh, PaxBritannica.info. I also have uh, the history of witchcraft, which is oh, right. a completely different topic entirely. Um, but uh, it might be interesting to people who maybe the British Empire isn't quite as interesting. There you go. All right. So uh, go check out Pax Britannica. And uh, I'm going to check out the, was it the... The, the history of witchcraft. History of witchcraft. Nice original name. Yeah. So, um, all right, everyone, we'll see you at uh, the next talks. Thanks so much for joining. Sam, thank you again. Thank you very much. Thanks, everyone, for watching. Cheers, y'all. Saving money on exterior wall lights. Now at Menards. Find your style with Patriot Lighting. Exterior lights enhance the look of your home. Choose from over 50 options from Patriot Lighting. Now through May 19th, get $10 instant savings on a single qualifying purchase of $100 or more on in-stock outdoor wall lights. Check out our entire selection of outdoor lights and see the rest of our deals happening now on Menards.com. Save big money.